Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The legendary New York Studio School marathons are immersive courses that emphasize experimental learning and expand the boundaries of what drawing, painting, and sculpture can be. Fall 2020 virtual intercession marathons take place November 5th through the 9th. Artists from anywhere in the world are invited to participate in a five-day virtual marathon. Each course is designed to expand upon essential themes and working methodologies in art making. Apply online today at nyss.org and follow them on Instagram at ny underscore studio school. Amir H. Falah is an artist who received his BFA in the Fine Art and Painting at the Maryland Institute College of Art and his MFA in Painting at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's exhibited extensively in solo and group exhibitions across the United States and abroad. Selected solo exhibitions include the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tucson, the San Diego Art Museum, the Schneider Museum of Art in Ashland, Oregon, the San Diego Art Institute, and the Nerman Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas. He's in a permanent collection of the Perez Art Museum in Miami, the McConvoy Foundation for the Arts in San Francisco, the Nerman Museum in Kansas City, the Smart Museum of Art at the University of Chicago, Davis Museum in Massachusetts, the Microsoft Collection in Washington, and many more. His public art commission awards include the Los Angeles Arts Commission, the Bayek Art Mural Project in Los Angeles, Pow Wow Antelope Valley, the Museum of Art and History in Lancaster, California, the Mocha Mural Program at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tucson, and the Cheritos College Public Commission in Lancaster, California. In 2009, he was chosen to participate in the 9th Shiraj Biennial in 2015, he received the Joan Mitchell Foundation Painters and Sculptors Grant. In 2019, his painting Calling on the Past received the Northern Trust Purchase Prize at Expo Chicago. And in 2020, he was awarded the Cola Individual Artist Fellowship and the Artadia Grant. He has a current show at Shulamit Nazarian in Los Angeles that's up through October. Amir and I speak about work ethic, acclimating to the West Coast, UCLA stories, his experience moving on from Beautiful Decay, the magazine he started, making paintings, and much more. Here's our conversation. I just bring him to work with me because he, he, he barks a lot. Yeah. He's just like a very vocal dog. And like, we have my wife's working from home. We have our, we just brought back our nanny to like just take care of our kids so we can both work. Um, and now, uh, you know, so it's just like a dog, somebody working and a nanny and a five-year-old. It's just like too much at the house. So 
It's oh. a lot, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, everything is a lot. Well, I mean, it's funny how, you know, if if I had spoken to you nine months ago, totally different vibe and podcast. Oh, my God, yeah. 2020. My, my friend, uh, do you know the artist Daniel Gerwin? I don't. He used to live in New York. Anyway, he lives in L.A. He also writes for Hyperallergic and a couple of other publications. But, uh, like, eight months ago, him and I... Our, our sons are both in the same preschool and um, we went to this cafe because he was writing this he's writing this article about parenting uh, artists that are parents and yeah. like actually the article came out in Hyperallergic Today and he interviewed me for it I mean we went to some coffee shop and we had some like tasty croissants and some juice and coffee and we just had like a friendly chat and then today he was like hey the article's finally out and I'm like what article are you talking about He's like, you know, the one we sat at that coffee shop. And I'm like, oh, my God. Think about how carefree. We were, like, bitching and whining about our kids, you know, driving right, us right. nuts. And it's like, it's a whole new world. It's like, uh, it, it is. you know, I would give anything well, it to sneaks have. Up, it's, it sneaks up on you when, I mean, something like this is so different in a way yeah. that I think it just, you're really conscious of it. Like, there's a lot of changes that happen in your life that are either incremental or there's like a slow build to it or something yeah like even this sort of current administrative climate that's happening was kind of you know transitional in some way or another but i the the whole you know past since march has been like upside down it's crazy yeah yeah my well my my i was born during the iranian revolution and I was talking to my mom yesterday, and she was like, this is exactly how it was before the, bit, the revolution like really broke off. She, oh, was like, yeah. she was like, it was complete chaos. Nobody knew who to trust. There was all these different factions of people. They were all like fighting each other, even if they were on the same side. I'm like, you're literally describing what's happening now. She's like, yeah. Right. She's like, right. this is how it starts. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's I guess it's felt polar in this country like there's you know the the red and blue and you know democrat republican it, it's felt kind of like you know binary for a while but it really seems to have i don't know if it's the internet and well obviously it's yeah. it's people in power and then also the internet and just the way information moves quicker now that it just or everyone's kind of like always thinking about everything right you know because i'm sure back in the 20s and 30 or whenever you know there was this dynamic where there was a lot of stuff going down but it's just now it's it's a deluge of information like you can't ignore it or escape it really unless you go off the grid and then that's more sort of you know i don't know that's like a crazier notion than anything else to actually disconnect for some reason so it's just i think that's adding to the the fever pitch, you know, it's like, it's kind of like in a school when there's two kids who, you know, aren't getting along and then all day in school, they're like, do you ever see that movie three o'clock? I think it's called three o'clock high, but all day they're like, you're going to fight. You're going to fight. By the time the end of school comes, the tension is so wrought that it's just a foregone conclusion that's going to happen. Right. And that it's, it kind of feels that way. Yeah. It's scary, man. I've never been this scared my entire life. You know? Yeah. And I, I left during a war. <laughs> <laughs> from a country that was like I mean granted I was a little kid so I didn't I wasn't paying attention but 
Yeah. God, thank God for that, right? Thank God for the ability of kids to be distracted or not to fully grasp the gravity of the situation. I mean, I'm generalizing, but um, because they're all going through it now. Like, you know, I remember when I was a kid in grade school, we would have these drills because it was like Cold War stuff. We would have drills where we have to duck and cover under the desk in case like it was like the nuclear weapon was the real scary. You had to do that? You're not that old. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We did it. Wow. I mean, it was in the 80s. That was a Cold War. I mean, yeah, I guess had, you're right, yeah. The Russian stuff was going down. What so. year? When in the 80s? I got here in 86, 87, something like that. Uh, this, this is going to be, this isn't my strength here going back in time, but I'm going to say uh, probably, I'm guessing when I was like 10 or 11 years old, maybe? Would that seem to be, what grade is that? I don't know. It's like Don't you have a kid grade. that's closer to that? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I should know this stuff. My kid's five, no, so. Like, I'm going to say, actually, it, may, it was probably like fourth grade, which means, yeah, I was a little, you know, I was probably eight, so I was going to say like you know, 82, maybe? 82, 83? Okay, yeah. So I was Around that yet. time? Yeah. I came a few years later. But, you know, that was scary. Yeah. But there was no, uh, you know, the the sort of information wasn't palpable. Like it wasn't reliable sources or, or news on TV or anything. It was just like, hey, you know, the Russians, we could go to war at any point and you got to duck under this desk. And it was, yeah. you know, it was scary stuff. And that wasn't even, we weren't even really in the environment of, of you know, danger necessarily or a place that you would think is going to get, you know, I came from Pittsburgh. It's not like that's going to be the number one place right. for people to attack. So, I don't know. It was just it psychologically it really affects you. But I'm I'm sure as a kid that you had a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, well I mean I remember air raids in uh in Iran and I remember having to like uh in the middle of night, um we lived in this like penthouse apartment, so like coming downstairs and going to this cul de sac with all the other families and you could you couldn't see the planes but you could hear fighter planes flying over overhead and i have this memory of having a toy gun and like pointing my gun to the sky and like pretending to shoot the planes down there were probably iranian planes that were going but um yeah but tehran was like very close to the front lines of the war and that was like a super bloody war that was happening you know yeah totally i mean i lost relatives in it and i got two uncles. how long did it go on <sighs> maybe 10 years i feel like it was shortly yeah. after the revolution. I don't think it ended until after it was maybe eight or ten years at least. Yeah, so but it was, was bloody. Fa- yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, was the family sort of you know leaving a direct result? Was it what was the? No, it wasn't one thing. It was like multiple things. So like you know, the Iran had this revolution. They kicked out the Shah, the king, and uh, then these religious clerics were like oh we're going to set up a democracy and essentially they lied to the entire country and as soon as you know my mom told me within five months they were like ah we're going to make everybody enforce islamic law you know and that's not what they came in so like my dad for instance was very pro-revolution my dad's basically an atheist he's not a religious guy at all he was a little bit religious back then but not like extreme right so he got tricked and an entire generation like him was tricked by this Khomeini guy and um, they were duped. You know, they thought they were going to usher in democracy and 
they brought in something much worse, you know? Um, yeah. So anyway, so that was happening. And then the Iran-Iraq war happened. And like they were sending, so many people were dying that they kept sending younger and younger teenagers. And uh, my parents had an opportunity to go to Europe. And they were like, you know, let, let's get out of here while we still can. Because it was that yeah. uncertain. Like uh, the main cities weren't affected, but it felt like only a matter of time. It could go either way. Yeah, it's it's it. I feel like the the measure of uncertainty in life really has a profound effect on decision making. Yeah. When when in essence, no one really knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no real certainty, but just that idea of uncertainty and like you know flux it just changes that decision making process so you know i've like just being here in new york after during and after not after we're in it but during covid when it was really bad so many people left they were just like all right we're out you know and um people who would probably have just stayed here for a long time but just said it was the tipping point or something so yeah well, you guys don't have any space either. I mean, it's it's brutal in Los Angeles, and we have tons of space. You know, I have a yard and I have a pool. We have so many creature comforts, and it's still unbearable. So, yeah, being in like a high rise apartment just sounds like a nightmare. Yourself. It's a true test of metal. Yeah, I mean, it's just <laughs> it's, it's rough. You know, you, you need square footage, especially if you have a family. Like, you need physical distance. Like, to me, that's like a very important it's a key to like happiness when you're like married with like a kid like everybody needs their own little space if you don't have that it's brutal totally i mean i feel because we were in a very strict quarantine i feel lucky that we have four oh that's one yeah like five essentially like four or five rooms so we can go into a we can each go into a room and close the door and do what we need to do you know for those families who have like a lot of kids right. and there's like, th- it's a three room apartment. I mean, wow, that is not easy. And the thing when you're in the city, you're taking the elevator, like you, there's, you can't escape people, you know? Right. Yeah. During the really, you know, severe part of the, the lockdown, uh, the friends I had in LA who were, you know, oh, I'm just going to go out and walk into your, I mean, it was such a. Like, oh, that seemed like such a luxury to just be able to walk out into a yard. Yeah. Yeah, but it's brutal. I mean, were you out of the studio for a while? Were you at home or did you get Um, to your studio? Is it kind of secluded enough that you can do your thing? Yeah, so I didn't stop working uh, because I had like an upcoming show and – Luck, you know, I usually I have a couple of people helping me in the studio, but um, I had them stop coming in. One of them kept working, but from home. Um, and so, yeah, I would say for like three or four, maybe even longer, I was by myself in the studio. And even when there was lockdown, I would, I would just come here anyways because I was by myself in an empty room. Nobody was around me. Yeah. I don't have a shared hallway or shared bath. There was nothing shared. It's completely private. Um, I have a separate entrance. So so that was nice. But, you know, I was only working a quarter of the day, you know. And uh, my wife works. She has a corporate gig and she, you know, she could work from home, but she still had to work. So we would split up our days. I would watch my kid for half the day and then I would come to work and kind of work like a third shift. 
And then I made I made these little watercolors at home just on our dining room table. Yeah. So you know we we made do, do. what you can it do was fun. right yeah yeah and it was great I mean the uh, I had never made a lot of works on paper before and it actually opened up a lot of uh, doors as far as like what the possibilities are like I know you did you were working on some collages and yeah, it was kind of a similar a thing yeah and uh, it was nice to just be able to make something but I actually I found that it's informed the paintings in an interesting way which is you know. Happy coincidence, yeah. Yeah, like a small consolation of a non-ideal situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, when I first started going back to the studio, I would go at nighttime because in Bushwick where the studio is, there's a lot of traffic. You know, it's a lot of industrial stuff, a lot of trucks. It's hard to park. There's people. But I found out if if I went after dinner, it was dead over there like there's nothing going on and i could park right by the door and go in and just work and not see anyone so it became kind of like back to like the undergrad days of like working during night you know like doing yeah. that nighttime work thing which at my age isn't the most ideal time frame <laughs> i don't think yeah. i'm moving as fast as i you know it's brutal. as i used to at yeah. that time but i mean you when when push comes to shove you and you have time in the studio when you haven't had it you really know how to maximize that that time or at least you try to i think yeah what's well, therapy you know i mean for me like making work is like a source of happiness and energy and you know it's the it's one of the biggest driving forces in my life so i can't not make stuff so you know um going to the studio even you know i would stay here till like midnight or one i would like get takeout delivered and you know i'd be sleeping four to five hours but you know it's still worth it yeah it's weird you get or at least for me i would get energy you can be more physically tired by working in the studio but mentally the energy of like accomplishing and doing stuff and just being in that mode of making it's almost like it overrides the fatigue in a way even if it sucks, even if you're going through a hard time in it, because, you know, like, I think a lot of times artists will say, you know, we just, it's therapeutic, it's, you know, it's always, it's it's such a joy to, like, work, but it, realistically, when you're working, a lot of it is a slog, and it's not easy, but it's just, overall, the, you know, the that feeling of making stuff just overrides everything else, and it gives you this bump, you know? Yeah, I mean... I also think it's, you know, I, I have a couple of friends that they were just so depressed and kind of shell-shocked they couldn't make anything at all. Yeah. During, you know, they would delay shows and things like that. And I just, you know, everyone's different, obviously, and everybody's mental states are is different. But I just can't, I can't relate to that. Like, it, it, I can't even comprehend um, feel ever feeling like i've never felt like that i'm I'm always like i I need to keep my hands busy so um i probably became more prolific while in quarantine ironically but i was you know i was sacrificing like sleep and health and i was eating a bunch of junk food like gained 10 pounds you know uh so i'm not saying it was healthy but um making work is like the one thing that that i'm always doing I, i can't it's the one corner I can't cut. Yeah, unfortunately, productivity and health aren't always in the same lane. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, there's so many times where I feel so good about like the amount of work I did, but I was like, man, I feel like crap because I'm just tired. And you know, you'll like, I'll do this thing. I feel the same way about working too. It's like, I can't like, I can't turn it off to be like, well, the conditions aren't right right now, you know? And I think as a teacher, sometimes I've really had to learn that like people have different ways of working and some people just need that, you know, they'll sit around and wait for, you know, inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't understand that. I'm just like, you just work through it, you know, but, but different people work in different ways. And yeah. it's like people write music. There's the people who practice every day. And then there's people who have to take a break and just not think about songwriting and wait until they're inspired. So, you know, but I'm definitely like a moving through ideas, like working through it kind of person. So, yeah, I, I think it's I, a painter painter thing, too, because painting is just take especially your work and like my work there's no speeding up the process uh, right, right. it it it's going to take a long time you know it's uh you know i started making those drawings initially i was like great i'll make some work it'll be looser faster finally i can make some work where i'm not spending you know a month on right and by the end of the quarantine i had managed to you know, make these tiny drawings, super tight, super anal, super embellished. And I was back to square once. So I was spending two <laughs> weeks on a little drawing, you know, right. uh, that, you know, if you start calculating what it sells for versus the hour, you know, it makes absolutely no sense. I, I just can't I help can't it. Help. Yeah, yeah. I can't help but do that sometimes where I'll make a, a bigger painting that's, you know, sometimes they're complicated, sometimes they're more simple. And I'll do a bigger painting that's simple. And you know, okay, well, that's going to be worth X. And then I'll spend, you know, days on a tiny collage that are just, you know, and you think yeah. about like worth with artwork should, you know, I, I know it's size related, but sometimes that doesn't line doesn't up with, sense, yeah. yeah, it really does. I mean, it's just one of those default things, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm constantly trying to like channel my inner abexer, you know, like I love abstraction and I love loose gestural work and I'm just so... Uh, jealous of those artists that can go in a studio and start and finish something in one day. I know they have to make oh, mo- multiple pieces that they have to scrap. I, I know that it's a process of editing and that kind of work, but I'm still jealous because, you know, my, I have to wait at least a month to get that, you know, that dopamine yeah. fix of like, oh, I finished something today. Like I accomplished something, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah, I get a little jealous too about like um, improvisation because yeah. I tend to plan things and there's like micro shifts and things that aren't planned out and there's a difference between when I do a collage and a painting or if I have the idea or a, a digital drawing for something, but it's minute to say the least. Right. And, you know, people who just go in and they have no idea what's coming out that day. I just always feel... And my love for improvisation and music and stuff like that only makes it worse, you know? It's like just love that the idea of that freedom but um that's probably just as hard if not harder than you know doing it planned out yeah yeah it's all hard no matter what feels free or you know it feels more liberated yeah (laughs) so when the the work that you were doing i mean i guess when you were a kid were you always into being creative or was your environment you know friendly to that or yeah i I mean early before like I didn't really get serious about art until like I was probably like 13 or 14. But before that, you know, I think my parents didn't realize it, but there was some hints. Like I used to do these triangular 
abstract things and I used to keep telling and this is when I was like six or seven I would tell my parents it's abstract art and I've invented a new art form and I, and I think that I was making those when I was like four or five and mm-hmm. my parents were supportive but I don't think they really because they're not creative really they didn't realize like oh we should like really push this right. so I kind of abandoned that and then really when I got more into art was when I was around 12 years old I got into graffiti uh, through skateboarding and uh, I wanted to get better at graffiti so I started taking art classes in, in junior high and then uh, I realized oh I was a little bit good at this and I won some like I made like a banner for the school I won some art prize for it and it just gave me that little boost of motivation I needed to take it more serious yeah. and then by the time I was in, in eighth grade I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew which college I wanted to go to. I was like, I'm gonna be an artist. I'm gonna sell artworks and show in galleries. And here's the college I'm gonna go to. And- uh, Wow, in eighth grade, that's pretty- Yeah. It's pretty early. Well, I had had this, uh, I had a school rep from Micah. I lived, I grew up in Virginia, right outside of DC. And I had Mm -hmm. a rep from the Maryland Institute College of Art come and do an artist talk. Or, or a talk about the school. And and I was like, it, it sounded amazing. It sounded creative and fun and experimental. And um, I remember at the time, the school was $12,000 a year. And I went to my teacher, her name was Miss Hammer. And I said, Miss Hammer, uh, you could buy a new car <laughs> every year for four years. For, I was like, there's no way I could ever afford to go to the school. And she was like, well, if you work really hard and you apply for scholarships, you know, they'll pay you to go to school. And I was like, oh, so I just have to work hard to do it? She's like, yeah. I was like, okay, I can work hard. And I just, from that day on, I I worked hard and I applied to two undergrad schools. I applied to the Corcoran in DC and to Mm -hmm. MICA. I got into MICA, I got a scholarship and, you know, off I went. But it was like literally like that rep came, then my teacher said, oh, you just work hard. And I was like, okay. And then I was off. <laughs> well, that's great, though, that you, I mean, they came through with the scholarship and that. Yeah, I mean. It wasn't know. just lip service, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah. of times schools may have one or two scholarships, but they're not, you know, it's difficult to get or whatever. But it sounds like it was the perfect, you know, sort of situation. It wasn't far from home, I guess. So no. it was sort of comfortable in that sense. Yeah, it's an hour away from, from Virginia, so. Yeah, I would I would go and visit my parents during the weekends and um, and that's like a, it's a very Micah is like an interesting school because it's very traditional in a sense yeah. like it's very old school like figure drawing tons of figure drawing you know like your first year in art school you're learning glaze painting and all these kind of like outdated techniques you know yeah. um, and I really resisted that I was like making. Uh, you know, like shitty Rauschenbergs when I got in there. Um, But, and I always resisted all the figurative drawing classes. And um, one of my teachers, uh, who's really great, this guy Carl Connolly, he was this incredible figurative painter. And he, you know, my first class with him, he would just like look at my work and he's like, you sure you want to be a painter? It was just so bad. It was so bad. Um, I had because I because most of the kids I somehow I had gotten into this advanced painting class, but I had no idea how to paint. I was just like gluing, you know, I was gluing fabric softeners to canvases and, 
you know, texturally they were interesting, but there was no like foundation. I couldn't draw, I couldn't paint, I didn't know. You know, I was trying, uh, so the first assignment was to make this gigantic canvas. We had to build the stretchers, stretch it, and then make a painting in oil. And I think I tried to mix water with oil paint. Oops. I had no idea what I was doing. Wait, so you just jumped straight into an advanced painting class? You didn't yeah. have to do the intro? Yeah, they just, because I, I was making these abstractions that were interesting, you know, for, yeah. for my grade. They were different, you know? So the creativity was there, but the foundation wasn't there. But right. I guess the creative side was good enough that I got a pass, but I was in that class with, like, incredible draftsmen, you know, like people that could really paint, and they could, like, glaze paint. They, they, they could draw the figure. And uh, so all these people were, like, bringing in essentially, like, Renaissance paintings, you know, <laughs> like super yeah. high-quality, beautifully rendered works. And, like, my square stretcher was, like, you know, like almost like a triangle. It was so warped. And, <laughs> I mean, it was I've bad. I there. mean, yeah. he, he, was, he was just, like, in disbelief at how bad my first piece was. And um, – but I really liked them and I really – I just freaked out. I was like, all these kids went to these magnet schools. They're all, they all come from like fancy, you know, these like magnet art schools or private schools. And they all had one leg up. So I, after he told me my work was really bad and he was totally right. He said it in a very nice way, but I went right to the library and I just started reading every book on contemporary painting I could. I just like, I became a human sponge and I just tried to teach myself and uh, later on, I became very good friends with this teacher. We're still in touch. And, you know, um, he became a big champion of my work later on. But it was pretty touch and go for that first. Uh. <laughs> well, you got shoved in a pretty deep end of the pool there. Yeah, it was pretty that's bad. Like a, that's like a seventh grader who's got pretty good footwork getting thrown on the, the varsity soccer team. It's like they're just bigger kids and the yeah. game is complicated. The field's bigger. Like, you know, you just got shoved into a, an advanced situation there. Yeah, you know, but it, it worked out. It, honestly, I, I think it worked out fine because the one thing, I think the one advantage, like I don't think I'm super talented uh, when it comes to art, but I'm very hungry. Like I'm, you know, like I usually just will outwork most other people to the point where I'll catch up by just working a lot more. So I was like, I can't get kicked out of art school you know, there's no other options. I'm just going to work 10 times harder, you know, to play catch up. And it, and it worked. I'm right there with you. I, I had the same, like, I didn't have the ability, but I just figured coming from like a blue collar family, I just figure I'll just work really hard and accept the differences. I didn't work really hard thinking I'll just work really hard and get as good as the other people. I just thought, I'm not as good as them, so I'll just work really hard and just impress you with the sheer volume of what I can do. Right. <laughs> quantity, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was definitely just, a quantity know, guy. Yeah, Yeah, I'll just make more of it, and then you'll, you know... Like, I, when I was in graduate school, I made these paintings that were based on fractal numeric systems, and I would, like, chart them on the canvas in pencil before I painted on top of it in acrylic. And part of the reason I was doing it I, you know, in retrospect, like afterwards, when I thought about it was, it was kind of a defense mechanism because the teachers were so kind of, you know, and it was so intimidating. And I felt like, well, you may hate this kind of abstract stuff I'm doing. You may think it's weird, but at least you can't deny that I, I worked really hard on it, you know? And that was like my, 
my fallback is like, well, I'm working hard. I can, I might not be as good as everyone else, but I can work harder than everyone else. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I think you're right. It comes from that blue collar, you know, like you, you, that's something you can't teach anybody. Like people are either hungry for life, you know, in all respects or they're, or, yeah. or they're not. And I watched my parents have to rebuild their lot, their lives like three times before they were even 40 years old. And I just saw what hard work looked like. Like my father is one of the hardest working people I know. And, you know, he came to America with $72 and like a five-year-old and his wife. And literally in one generation, my parents, you know, did what most people takes them many generations to do, you know. Um, So I think watching that growing up, I was just like, this is how you make it. You know, I'm at a disadvantage. Uh you know, whether it's like financially or just talent wise, I just have to work extra hard. And that's pretty much, you know, I guess that's been pretty much true, you know, ever since then, too. Like, um, I, just yeah, I think try it to just gets hard. ingrained into you, doesn't it? It's yeah. like that mode of thinking. You just, you know, my dad worked double shifts and my mom worked all the time. Like I was a latchkey kid. You know, I let myself in after school and my brother. And, you know, you just that you just feel like, okay, this is the way it's supposed to be. you got to work hard for stuff, yeah. you know, which as a parent, if you try to provide your kid a lot of stuff, you immediately reflect on it as in guilt that like, oh, I'm, you know, <laughs> like you want to provide for them and give them a lot of opportunities. But also you realize if there's never a struggle there, they probably won't get that, that drive, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how was, uh, so Micah went well, you and you did well there and your work progressed and yeah, I mean, I did, I did well enough. You know, I was still like, uh, I was kind of like the black sheep of the department because I wasn't really into figurative painting or representational painting. Ironically, that's what I do now. So is that traditional? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like that now though, right? Uh, I think it's still pretty traditional. I mean, the funny thing is like, despite that fact they have a lot of great artists that come out of there you know yeah and i think the one advantage those artists have is uh they have a really good foundation you know so if you can you know a lot of artists these days from you know different schools come out and like they literally don't understand color or form or shape or you know just like the basics the basics you know so uh I think there's a lot of great artists that come out of that school because they have that foundation because the other stuff you can learn, you know, if you're a curious person, you can understand about the history of art. But, you know, but they also had, you know, in some ways they did a disservice to some students because you would have these students that were so technically advanced, but then that that advanced level of skill also became a crutch, you know? So there was, oh, this, yeah. there was this one artist there that was incredible and she ended up you know everybody thought she was going to be a art rock star but you know she's probably just painting portraits of like wealthy people you know yeah. commissions and making a good living but she doesn't have like a real art career right um because i think early on nobody was like you need to expand your horizons like how are you adding to the dialogue of contemporary art they were just like, yep. yes, just keep painting those barns and make them look really good, you know. <laughs> right, it's got to be a balance, right? Yeah. I always, I feel like as a teacher, we're always um, just pushing the ones who are super creative but need to work on their formal aspects of things. 
you focus on that. And the ones who are really gifted, you try to show them like, okay, there's more to just making something look nice or, or to making it look like that proficiency only goes so far. How do you challenge that? You know, but yeah, where I teach, we do, we teach glazing and intro the painting and boy, do they hate it. Most of them, there's always a couple that love it, but most of them hate it and they can't wait to move on to, you know, a la prima, but it's, you know, we teach that, we teach figure drawing and all that stuff because I think it is, and I went to undergraduate where I teach at Penn State and it was a great foundation. I mean, am I using, I'm using elements of stuff I learned in that more traditional aspect in, I mean, albeit in hidden ways or whatever, but it's part of you, you know, and I think it's a good structure. It's easier to unlearn than to not know, I think. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, especially at that age. So when you went, so was it immediate? I, I forgive. I don't know the the lineage. Was it an immediate move to the West Coast, or was yeah, it? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I was totally clueless. So uh, the one thing I knew was that I wanted to be, you know, quote unquote, a real artist. So I was like, what's the what's the game plan? Like, what do you do? And somebody was like, you go to grad school. I was like, okay, what's the top 10 grad schools? And they gave me a list and I just applied to every single one of them (laughs) (laughs) for like the top eight, you know. And um, luckily I got into some and uh, I visited – well, ironically, so with the artist who I was telling you about that I went to school with that had a lot of like raw talent – her and I flew out to L.A. and we went and visited several schools, Art Center, Cal Arts, and UCLA. And we had both gotten into all three of them. And um, I remember going to Cal Arts, and um, I was really impressed by the, uh, by the facilities there, but I didn't really like the student work. And same thing with Art Center. But then I went to UCLA, and it just happened that a thesis show was opening that night. At UCLA. What, what year are we talking? This was 2001, maybe 2002. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's really percolating at that point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like, it was at like a 99 was like the crux, right? Yeah. Where you had like all those, you know, Laura That's Owens probably, and, and all those people were kind of striking well, at that point. Was Laura Owens at UCLA? I thought she was at CalArts. Oh, I just mean the the L.A. kind of scene. Art scene, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, like L.A. Remember there's a spin article, I think? Yes, I read that article in grad school, and I was like, holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that that created a lot of interest in L.A. Oh, big time, yeah. So when I went to this this, uh, grad, you know, thesis show, I was blown away. I mean, the, the work was at such a high level I was like, this could be in any major museum, and I would be like, it's in. The work, like, conceptually it was strong, technically it was strong, and immediately I was like, I'm going here. There's, there's no question. It was so – the work was just so good, yeah. and people were making things, and, like, um, it was conceptually rigorous and had a craft component to it, which is kind of like my sweet spot. And, uh, and I remember I told – the other artist I was with, I was like, can you believe how good this work is? And she just looked at me. She's like, what are these conceptual paint, conceptual artists going to tell me about how to make art? I'm not going here. <laughs> and uh, I think she ended up going to Penn State um, <laughs> to study with some like a very traditional 
figurative painter um, out there. And, you know, I've never heard from her again. I've, uh, but anyways, but yeah, I was just blown away by UCLA and, um, yeah, they just kind of made a, uh, you know, they made me a deal I couldn't refuse. So, you know, I just packed up and moved out here. Now, was this your first kind of West Coast experience? Well, I was I was a diehard East Coaster at the time. I thought I would go out. I, I had been here once before, but I just, when I came, when I thought of L.A., I just thought of, like, it was, like, this, like, douchey Hollywood scene, you know? Yeah. And so I didn't have, like, a good feeling about California or Los Angeles. And I was, like, I, I more imagined myself, you know, being in, like, the gritty streets of New York and, like, living in some, like, shitty loft with, like, 20 other people and... That's what I was kind of used to from living in Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, so I thought I'd go to UCLA, get, you know, graduate and then move to New York. And um, the first year in L.A. was difficult just because it's so vast. You don't know anybody. Um, but then like February hit and I remember I was like getting things together to go to the beach. I was wearing shorts and flip flops and I was like. Oh, it's snowing in New York right now. I just, it blew my mind. I never, you know, being from the East Coast, it's like when it's winter, it's horrible. And I was just like, we're going to the beach when people are like riding the subway, like half wet and cold. I was like, fuck this. I'm never moving back. <laughs> it's the weather. See, that's the, weather. the West Coast. It's, it's a siren. Like the weather just lures you in. And like, how, like, oh. of course, how can you move away from that? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Like, I so, feel like anyone who sets foot in San Diego, it's like the Bermuda Triangle. Like, you could just get stuck there forever. It's so beautiful yeah. there. It's beautiful. The only problem with San Diego is there's not a lot of culture there, you know? Totally. Um, but the that's the only reason every yeah, single weather, human yeah. doesn't live there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But L.A., you know, and also I grew up in the suburbs of Virginia. And, like, what was great about L.A. is that it was the perfect mix of suburban life meets culture. So you can have a house with like a yard and personal space, but then if the the best comedy, art, music, it's all here. So if you want access to those things, you have easy access to them. But if you want to keep to yourself and hole up in the studio, you can do that too. Um, And then also if you do want snow, it's an hour away. You can literally drive to to a mountain, you know, in like a month or two and just be playing in the snow and then you can drive back and then you can be in shorts yeah and you know or you want to go to the beach or the desert you just have access to the climate and then culturally for art especially back then it just seemed like anything was possible in la everybody was forging their own path like there's all these galleries in chinatown but they were like diy and like you just black didn't dragon, know what was yeah exactly like black dragon you know one of my teachers at ucla started black dragon and that was the first gallery i went to in la and it just seemed like the possibilities here were endless where in new york there was a very clear path and like you were gonna you kind of knew what was gonna happen where here it was like you had no idea it was you know felt like the wild west yeah so that overrode the douchey showbiz vibe of so <laughs> the, okay the earthquakes and fires and all the rest of that stuff. well there wasn't that many fires back then and honestly the earthquakes have been fine it, it's very minimal you know um 
And really, the the thing that I think most people that don't like LA don't realize about LA is that LA is really like six or seven different cities, totally yeah. separate cities. And depending on where you live in the city, you're exposed to different things. So, for instance, it would be the equivalent of comparing Brooklyn to New Jersey. Yeah. It's like literally like night or day, right? Like yeah, if yeah, you go definitely. to Brooklyn to like, I don't know, some suburb in Jersey. I mean, culturally, politically, on every level, you know, I've, I've, I used to spend a lot of time in New Jersey and you'd go there and be like, who are these people? They're, they're like a footstep away from like one of the biggest cultural centers of the world. Yet they're like, you know, stuck in time. Listen, uh, that happens 60s. in Brooklyn and Brooklyn. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's but not, you know what I mean? You like, have to leave the borough to get that kind of yeah, so, discrepancy. So, so in L.A., you know, you, you can if you live in East L.A., it's a different type of life. If you live in Hollywood, there's a different type of life. Venice is a different type of life. And there's different, there's different communities. And so you just have to find a pocket that you feel very happy with. Like yeah. I go to Santa Monica maybe once every year, two years. Like that, that world is completely foreign to me. None of my friends live there. None of the places I go to are there. You know, um, if somebody has a show, I feel, sorry, I just I feel the same way about Uptown. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like a different. I think I go world. there once every three or four years. You know. Yeah. Well, why would you? Right. Like you have yeah. no connection to it. It's like a different. You know, it's like a t- different income bracket. It's a different viewpoint. So. Um, so I just found my, my pocket that made sense. And uh, once I graduated, you know, we, we moved to the – we live in Highland Park now, which at the time was like a sleepy, you know, uh, neighborhood. But now it's become kind of the epicenter of Los Angeles in many ways where there's three or four galleries walking distance to my house, which is yeah. bizarre. How far is your studio from where you live? My studio is in Alhambra. So it's just in this like little industrial park like – 10 minutes away. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So you're not sitting in traffic every day. To no, get to no. Studio. Nobody in LA, if you do, if you do LA right, you, you're never in traffic or maybe like once a week if you have to go cross town. Like traffic, honestly, is not that big of a concern here. Yeah. Like, yeah, you, it's, it's, it's only funny. a concern if you live in Highland Park and you have to go to Santa Monica. Right. But who would get it? Like my wife will not apply to any jobs on the west side. She's like, you know, it's like going again. It's like if you had to travel to Jersey, if you live in New York, right? Like yeah. you would never do. How much money could they possibly pay you to make that kind of commute? Careful. I commute to Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's true. Well, you're going the other way, I guess. <laughs> you just leave really early in the morning and you get no traffic. Yeah, that's it's true. <laughs> but don't you stay there? Uh, you stay there a couple of days, right? Yeah, yeah. It's basically like Tuesday through Thursday. Yeah, see, that's a different That's a different schedule. I'm talking about a daily commute. Right. It's right. not far away enough to stay, so you would just like sit in traffic for two hours each way. Yeah. So it just makes no sense. Yeah, you would have to like buy another house there or something, you know? Yeah. Um, I think the, I, I have such a minimal experience with Los Angeles that, you know, of course the perception of it is given by, you know, what you see in the media or what you hear in the media. A lot of that is showbiz stuff. And those are people who have to drive around for different reasons, for different gigs or whatever they're doing. And then they spend a lot of time in traffic. So, you know, your perception of the town is, if you don't spend a lot of time there is unfortunately, you know, from what you hear. And, you know, it's like people who've never got, spent a lot of time in New York think this and that of it, but... Right. It's, it's its own thing. Yeah. yeah. LA, I mean, I got to, like, like I said, I was like a diehard East Coaster and 
I, I really love LA. I mean, it's, I can't imagine uh, living anywhere else. Like, uh, I mean, if somebody gave me a huge loft in Manhattan with like a car service, okay, fine. I'd, maybe I'd move to New York, but that's literally what it would take. You right, know? right. <laughs> yeah, those are rare handouts. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the, one of the last time, uh, a while, like before I moved to LA, I remember I was, um, it was snowing and I just happened to look at the road and I saw Jeffrey Deitch in like a town car reading the newspaper <laughs> as I was like walking through like rain and snow. And I was thinking, this is the only way to live in New York. Yeah, right. You live in Manhattan, <laughs> you got some gorgeous loft and you have car service to and from everywhere you go. You're not, <laughs> you're not on the subway. <laughs> yeah. Not slogging around with the, <laughs> so you need, you need, you need the, the Deitch treatment, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, another perk uh, from the friends I have in LA. I mean, look at what's how big is your studio? It's pretty big. It it's like. big. It's uh, I don't know, like thirteen hundred square feet. Another advantage, you get a little more space, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's way cheaper. Homes are cheaper. You know, I mean, the first freestanding home I ever lived in was the house that my wife and I bought together. Oh wow! You know, like. T- like I'd never lived in a house before, uh, like a freestanding. I always lived in apartments and townhouses. So the, the con, like it blew my mind when we bought our house. I was like, to me, that just felt like such a high, you know, I, I lived in a one bedroom apartment for like three, four years when we first moved to America. And it was like disgusting, roach infested, you know, shithole. And, yeah. you know, not in a ghetto, but in like a really shitty apartment complex yeah so for me to like buy a house it's you know it's like the american dream and our house has a pool i mean like that to me just my wife comes from miami so everybody has pools down there but the idea of a normal person having a pool was so foreign to me like i was like i always thought only wealth like millionaires multi-millionaires had pools you know so for me it blew my mind yeah Yeah, it felt completely unattainable well, did it, I mean, after you, so you graduated from UCLA, how, like, I, I, the perception is, is that when you, it seems like LA is, uh, the community is fed into a lot by the schools because you sort of meet people that way. I mean, did you feel like you had your, you know, group of people that you could do studio visits with and you were connected with, within the art world there, or were you going out to openings? Like, how did you sort of acclimate into what was going on? So, so I went to grad, I was only 23 when I was in grad school, so I had no real life experience. Yeah. And I got into the school with a body of work that I actually think was, I still feel like it wasn't great, but it, it had, there was something to it, you know, Mm -hmm. content wise. Um, but UCLA completely fucked with my mind. I mean, it was, it was (laughs) a pulled the carpet out from under you. Well, you know, you have the dream team of artists teaching you, you know, yeah. I mean, like, uh, the years I was there, Paul McCarthy, Larry Pittman, James Welling, Kathy Opie, um, Baldessari, uh, Chris Burden, Nancy Rupp. I mean, it was like insane. And that's just a full-time staff, you know, and there was others, you know, then you would have like your visiting teachers would be Laura Owens, Elizabeth Payton, you know, have studios with Matthew Barney. I mean, it was just insane. So to be 23 years old and literally have your like art history book come alive and all these people are giving you their two cents, I couldn't handle it. Like I just. That seems 
like a lot and the thing is too those artists seem like they would be so entrenched in and maybe it's a total misperception but a lot of times artists who are really accomplished i don't want to say famous but you know like and their work is really them do you know what i mean like paul mccarthy is paul mccarthy so you would imagine he brings a certain kind of angle to the critique process of the way that he sees art all of them did that all of them did that even if they even if they didn't intend to be with the exception of a couple of people like kathy opie she was incredible yeah uh, but kathy's kathy's wife is also a painter so even though she's a photographer she really understands the language of painting you know but yeah. i would have one teacher come in and tell me uh, you should put text in this work. The next teacher would say, "Don't put text in the work." Then one person would go more minimal, go, you know, go no uh, more embellishment. You know, so I would have these contradicting um, viewpoints just coming at me rapid fire, and they're pretty hands off. But it was just like it was just like a quiet, uh, you know, it was like a quiet pressure. Yeah. So you know, and I'm like 23 years old. I don't know anything. This is the first time I've been exposed to the real art world, you know. Um, and I was like, who am I to not listen to these, like, art gods, you know, these these people that are showing in the best galleries or in museums. So I just listened to everybody as a result. And what I ended up with, you know, for my thesis show was these horrible paintings of, like, piles of rocks in empty rooms. And the work was devoid of all creativity content color i mean it was just it was horrible i mean it was like uh i was like the textbook definition of not how not to do grad school well yeah but it's hard i mean you have like you said how do you not listen it's so funny to think of like a giant pot of stew and you put in a mirror you put in paul and you put in kath you put all that stuff in there and you sift it out and it's paintings of rocks in a room (laughs) the work was so bad i mean like you know it's it's like spinning like someone coming in and spinning you this way and then like a half hour later you have another critique someone comes in and spins you the other way it's like how are you supposed to draw a straight line after like being spun in 40 directions you know well i think i think the real way to do it is to like have a little bit more life experience yeah be a little bit more mature uh within the work and be able to tell somebody like a baldessari like no i'm not gonna do that right that's great for you. Thank you for, you know, or whoever, you know, I'm just using him as an example. Yeah. He was actually a fantastic teacher. But but you know what I mean? Like you have to have a backbone. And my friends who had immediate overnight success and there were almost everyone with me and maybe an exception of one other one or two other people, the people that really excelled were the ones that that came to grad school with a clear idea of who they were artistically, what they work was about, and the school just polished them. Yeah, you know. And so I, I tell a lot of younger artists now, I'm like, don't go to grad school until you know who you are, because if you want to go to one of these top schools, like you want to be able to take advantage of like the network that's there. Right. If you're completely lost, like you're just gonna, especially at a school like UCLA or Columbia, you're just gonna get more lost or Yale, you know. Yeah. Um, how can you focus when you have all these incredible artists that are so amazing telling you what to do? Yeah. It, it's a mind fuck, you know? So it took me seven years to kind of purge all of that out of my system. And I showed a little bit here and there. 
but I had no career when I graduated from UCLA, at least not in the States. I started showing in Dubai a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had some success there, but I, I really don't think I, re- I found my artistic voice until it was like 2010, 2012. You know, that's when things, when I realized I should say, fuck everybody else, I'm going to focus on what I'm excited about. Yeah. Um, that's when things really kind of changed and kind of like everything started making sense. Right. Yeah. It's, it seems like it. You know, for different people, it's going to take a different amount of time to sort of exercise the demons of, <laughs> of that right. situation, you know what I mean? But yeah, I think I, because I went to grad school right after undergrad, and I can definitely see exactly what you're saying. Like, it would have been better to be a little more seasoned, maybe to have mm-hmm. a little bit thicker of a skin or to, you know, understand. But but th- that said, I do think it was a useful kind of exercise in being assaulted by by ideas and and you know spun like that because then you really have to start figuring out who you are there were some people who had spent a while outside of grad school and came back and it was almost like they were seeing it as like a two-year vacation of just like well i'll just polish Mm. my work and work on my connections you know but they didn't have the intensity either so and they already kind of saw the real world and was just kind of wanting to escape that so it's weird it depends on the person i think and it depends on yeah well you were probably a lot more mature you know like i just i don't know i i I think i was just a little more quiet or something like i just yeah let everything (laughs) flow through me or something i don't know I, i i didn't i wasn't too indebted to what people told me to do although i think i was lucky in the sense that a lot of my professors um asked me about kind of like what i was after or if they didn't understand what i was doing they were trying to get to that maybe and i didn't have too many people although it would happen sometimes but i didn't have too many people who were suggesting things and i always think that's weird as a teacher to go in someone's studio and say hey you know what you should do put text in that painting yeah. Because I feel like you want the artist to figure that out on their own. You want to ask them the questions to where they can realize if that might be the right choice. Not just say, right. like, hey, you should make that painting red. I don't like the purple or whatever. But there's a lot of teachers who do that, especially artists who are really confident in their own voice and what what they do. You know what I mean? And I think it's a really good teacher who can leave their own opinion or their own taste at the door and go in and just sort of talk to you about what you want to do. But I've had some of those ego teachers who they come in with their angle and it's right. their way or the highway sort of. I, I don't even think it was an ego thing with these teachers. It was just – I just didn't know how to sift through the suggestions. You know, yeah. I just – I really just – I was in shell shock. You know, uh, it, it was just like – it was too much too much pressure. You know, it was just like literally like every – like, you know, they'd be like – Hey, Matthew Barney is coming here next week. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what am I going to say? Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. I- and, and, you know, ironically, he comes into my studio and he's like, you ever think about making sculpture? And I'm like, what? No, <laughs> I don't want to make sculpture. You make sculpture. <laughs> don't you hate those crits? Like where someone comes in with something totally off mark. It's like what they're yeah. thinking about. Yeah. Those yeah. are tough. You know, one other thing I didn't mention, which which was also a big distraction, and I think why I didn't get a lot out of, not that I didn't get a lot out of, but I was so confused, was I also had this magazine that I was doing all throughout undergrad and grad school called Beautiful Decay, and it got really popular. Yeah, I knew and that it got magazine. Popular, 
Yeah, so it got popular to the point that it turned into a real business. So while I was in grad school, I was also running this huge operation. And, you know, I had eight or nine full-time employees and, I don't know, 50 freelancers all over the world working for us. And as soon as I graduated, we had an office and it got really big. I mean, it got complete. It was like an art project that just got out of control and turned into a real business. So a lot of the people that I met through grad school, they kind of almost started seeing me more as a publisher than an artist. So I would get invited to all these fancy like gallery dinners. Uh, and, you know, I, just, I was making art the whole time and I always thought of myself as an artist first, but people wanted to talk to me about the magazine and not the art. Right. So that also became, you know, a bit of a conflict especially back then when people could only like do like one thing, you know? Yeah. Well, how did that resolve itself? Uh, you know, I mean, it got super big before the recession, before 2008. I mean, it got huge and I was like, oh, this is it. Like, we're going to make tons of money. And, you know, we had a clothing line that was doing really well. But after the economy crashed, uh, like the clothing company the clothing aspect just completely dissolved because i don't know like 350 out of 400 stores we sold to closed down in like six months yeah Yeah. it was crazy i mean like hundreds of thousands of dollars just disappeared um and it just that that whole world changed and then you know i had two business partners that i had bought out right before the recession so that was bad timing uh so i i kept it going until about 2000 2011 but I just got to this point where I was like what do I want to do with the rest of my life do I want to feature everybody else's work and like promote other people's work or do I want to work on my own Yeah. and uh, I realized I was doing two things pretty good but I wasn't doing either one as best as I could and uh, so I stopped doing I just stopped doing it so I still own it you know uh and I just started focusing on on my own work full time. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that even though that was taking a bunch of your time, it was kind of like a productive, really sort of enriching process to be involved with all these other artists and, you know, working in that capacity. Yeah. No, it, it was wonderful in that, you know, I got to, you know, we were kind of like we were like before there was Instagram. That's kind of how the magazine functioned. We were featuring like a lot of young artists and designers whose work I I loved. Yeah. So it was a great way to like build a network in that capacity, and uh, I learned a lot about business, which comes into comes in handy when you're an artist and you're essentially a, like a one man business. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff I learned from it, but you know, who's to say? You know, like. I don't know if I'd be further along with my art career if I didn't have that giant distraction. But, you know, it is what it is. I, I did learn a lot. I had amazing experiences that most artists don't get to have. Um, so, you know, that's life, you know. Yeah, and I, it's funny because, you know, no one ever, well, I don't know what your education was like, but I don't think it's common to where you really get a lot of education in the business side of what you yeah. need to do as an artist so it's something like that can be really useful to like for you to get your shit together you know and just figure out like oh okay this is how i need to do something this is how i need to work with other people taxes you know? yeah 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 <laughs> like, exactly how do you do taxes yeah 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 so yeah 
I mean, there's some, there's definitely things that I learned there, but who's to say I couldn't have learned other things if, you know, I don't know. I mean, my, my, uh, I feel very weird about it, you know, because I, I really put a lot of energy into it and I'm not sure what I have to show for it. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, but it's, I think a, a lot of people really enjoyed reading that magazine. You sure. Know what I mean? So that yeah. in and of itself is pretty great. And a lot yeah, of like, not a lot of people provide that. I mean, nowadays it's so different, right? With insta- with the internet, it's completely different. Yeah. And that's why print stuff is totally different. Now it's almost like a fetish of like, oh, I can hold it, and look at it, you know. And it's, yeah. I mean, for those of us who grew up before that. You love it. You love being able to pick up a magazine or a book and reading that stuff. But oh, I, I love it. I yeah. mean, I love I love printed matter. Like I love books, and I mean, it started as like a black and white photocopy punk zine that yeah. I made in high school, you know, and then it like went through like many different iterations. It's pretty cool that it was that long that you worked on it. Yeah, nineteen ninety six. I mean, on and off. I did me and my best friend Jay Littleton in high school did three issues. And it was just like Kinko's, you know, cut and paste photocopy zine. Maximum rock and roll style. Not even that nice. I mean, I mean, it was like a zine, proper, you know, stapled zine that we made like a hundred copies of. Then I stopped, and then uh, in undergrad, uh, I was in, interning. I was in New York, and I was interning at Deitch, and living in Brooklyn. I would take the uh, train every day, and I would either buy Art Forum or you know, which would like, you know, be way too theoretical for me at that age. Or I would buy like a juxtapose and that would be like way too lowbrow. And there was nothing in the middle that was like accessible but informed. So then I restarted the magazine just for fun as an art project. And then it just uh, took a life of its own, you know, just became yeah, like an all in. It's interesting. It was filling that sort of median Thing. Isn't it weird too to see juxtapose how it started off as such a kind of like I don't Hot know how rods you, and tattoos yeah, yeah like was, like uh, what is it Robert Williams is that the name of that guy? yeah like that kind of stuff and then and now it's like total full on art mag yeah well I mean I think I think Beautiful Decay had a lot to do that I mean yeah. they were at one point we were like big competitors with each other and um, I definitely think we we inspired them to go towards that. Because I remember, you know, I had a lot of friends that worked there, um, and there definitely was like a big shift right around the time when Beautiful Decay was kind of at its height. Yeah, um, I do feel like the absence, or I don't want to say absence, but you know, the the thinning out of a lot of that those kind of voices in covering art is kind of a loss because now it's either just the PR releases on websites or. It's Instagram or like digital c- covering of things, you know. I kind of miss that in that that magazine or that zine feel, and yeah. because the the social media and the online stuff, it doesn't. the The beauty of the zine feel of things is that handmade kind of like, you know, I did this. It's like a, a voice, like it feels like a more singular voice of a fan or someone who's interested in something. Whereas online, it's just like regurgitation of images and like, hey look what I did and it's it's saturation of that kind of it I kind of miss that yeah I miss it too although when I go to like the 
the uh, that printed matter uh, zine festival thing they do in LA and New York. Oh, the art book fair, yeah. Yeah, when I go to that, I, I keep thinking to myself, this is like made for me. Like right. I love publications. I have a background in zine. And I always go and I end up not buying anything and I leave. And I can't tell if it's – I can't tell if it's because I've kind of been there and done that and I was so behind the scenes that I can't fully enjoy it anymore. Yeah. Or that – you know, like I, I love art books. Like I collect art books. I have thousands of art monographs by artists from all over. So that's something I spend lots of money on and, you know, I, I'm every week I get a – box coming in of like catalogs and things like that yeah so i buy that stuff but like zines and things like that i kind of just it feels like it, it would it, like buying a zine to me these days kind of feels like what it would feel like to buy like cassette tapes of music i don't see the point like like other than nostalgia like because you can get a better quality thing like why a cassette so I end up like I don't I don't get either one, but you know maybe that's just me being like old and bitter. And no, I think it's the same <laughs> thing, and I think what happens is the the medium aligns with the time. You know what I mean? And whenever you try to exactly. like, take it outside of that time, it just becomes like a f- fetish. The moments of, pass. Yeah, yeah. It's just like well, this is kind of like retro, of you know. Yeah. Like uh, collecting records. When I moved to New York, I had to lose them because I just didn't have enough space. And, yeah. you know, it just didn't make sense anymore. And I would love to have a gigantic record collection and, you know, a beautiful record player. I just don't have the space for it. So Spotify it is, you I, know. I, I don't have records either. I never, I mean, even back in the 90s, I mean, all my friends were in bands and uh, all my favorite bands would put out records. And I was like, you could just get a CD. Or like, you know, the only thing about records, is what's cool that's happening now is like, if you're a record collector, they'll put the limited edition vinyl yeah. and like they get heavy into the art of it. So I understand it for those, that reason. But yeah, like I already collect art books and I'm way more into that. So like I can't collect one more thing. <laughs> yeah, we have one yeah. thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm like I can have one thing. I have like a couple of thousand art books. You know, my dream is to have a l- private library of all my like art catalogs one day. Yeah. And I'm like I can't – also collect and also i don't really like a lot of new music i can't get into anything new oh yeah what's your what's your history with music well i mean i i grew up listening to a lot of like punk rock and hardcore Mm -hmm. in 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 dc but also a lot of like underground hip-hop too so um but i was very involved in like the mid 90s and like the punk and hardcore scene and in dc and that's where that's where the, the idea for the magazine came out of was all my friends were in punk punk and hardcore bands in DC and I couldn't play any music. And my next door neighbor, he also didn't play music at the time. And I was like, we should make us, you know, our contribution to the scene will be a zine, you know? Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, I listen to some, I listen to new stuff here and there, but nothing kind of gets me the same way uh, music did during, you know, my teenage years or like my early 20s. Like, it's very rare. I'll find like one or two new bands a year that I really get excited about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Ha- I have the endless. I mean, I have an endless going back in time mm-hmm. uh, interest in that, but I still will listen to new stuff too. I don't know. I, I do a little bit, but you're also a musician, right? So I, I guess. 
passively. But you have a background. But you have a back. You you know you. I think you can appreciate it on a deeper level. You know. Yeah. Um, where my love, my, you know, I think my my appreciation of music is probably not as sophisticated as like somebody that's actually like was in a band and like toured and like made music. You know. Yeah. Um, so it's not that I don't like uh, I don't like music, but I like something like Spotify. I feel like the opportunities are so endless that I don't have the time to really dig for that for that you know like uh, that one band that really like moves me. Right. So it has to just come across my desk. Like somebody has to post it on Facebook and be like, "I love this album." You <laughs> right, know? right. So like yeah, the I most feel- recent. I, I think ahead. that goes back to our one one thing. It, you know, there's so much stuff at our fingertips, and it's yeah. like one thing. You know, I feel whenever I even open Netflix, I get that anxiety of like, there's, I don't even do it because it's just yeah. too much. Unless someone says to me, "You have to watch this one thing." Yeah. Like I finally watched Black Panther last night because mm-hmm. my son was. <laughs> relentlessly saying you it's so good you got to watch it it's so good you got to watch it so i oh, so he had seen it yeah it was yeah. great you know it, it just i just there's so much out there video content wise that i can't cuz you know with making art and all the other stuff that i'm doing it's you know there's only so many hours in a day and it's almost like you got to pick and choose the things but back when i was in college it was like i would rent movies for like 50 cents like a night and rent like three movies and go paint all day and you had all the time in the world you know and then like grown-up life hits and <laughs> you lose some of that that well extra, that's the thing time. you you have that one hour of tv watching at night if you're lucky yeah and it's got to be something super pleasurable because if yeah, you fuck yeah. up and you pick something wrong, then you're mad at yourself because you just wasted away your like relaxing time, right? Uh, that's getting old in a nutshell. It's like if I have a bad coffee during the day, like every <laughs> coffee I have has got to be good because I'm not blowing one on a crappy cup of coffee. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like you, you get that way. It was like, well, I think that's the uh, the downward spiral of getting old. It's like, well, I only got so much time here, and I've got to make it count. You know, right. But yeah, that's that's come on, that's the beauty of the cycle of life. So, what are you working on these days? Well, I have a show up right now at Shulamit Nazarian Gallery in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, that was supposed to open in April, but you know, got delayed a bit. Oh, did something happen? Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the world's coming to an end. <laughs> um, so that that's up now, which has been great. Um, and then I have a project with uh, the San Jose ICA. Nice. Um, they're closed. They're closed for because of COVID. So uh, their curator Allison Gas, who used to be at the Smart Museum in Chicago, contacted me to do a. You know, they're doing this like new mural billboard series where essentially an artist will take over the out, outside facade of the museum mm-hmm. for up to a year. Nice. And so I made a new painting. That's it right there. Um, the horizontal one behind uh, Yeah. So I made this long panoramic uh, painting that will be uh, reproduced as vinyl along the top of the museum. And then the entire facade is getting covered up with something that I designed. And then they have these two symmetrical windows that will have these t- two tondos on motors mm-hmm. rotating slowly. And she told me, you know, she was like, you know, the, the show that I have up at Shulamitz is dealing with a lot of social and political issues and um, 
so she knew of that work. She was like, you know, do you have any ideas for uh, for a billboard? And my first instinct was to, you know, have something that uh, mimicked. Have you ever seen those like black and white billboards where it's like God talking to you? Oh yeah, it's like I'm attracted. Abortion's bad. Dash God. Yeah, <laughs> right, or right. whatever it is. Right. So I wanted to make like a liberal version of that. But then I thought, you know, that yeah, I could do something political like that, but it's not really I'm not really using the language that I use in my artwork. Yeah. So then I decided to make this gigantic painting, this long panoramic painting that touched on s- similar subjects but was a little bit more nuanced. So the show I have at Schulemitz is called Remember My Child and it's a um it's a series of paintings where the title of each painting is like a life lesson or a parable that I want to pass on to my young son. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I, I've taken those titles and kind of remixed them into this big painting uh, that'll be at uh, that'll be uh, up at San Jose, and it's it's dealing with themes of uh, you know. Uh, all this, you know, all the issues around race that's happening right now, environmental concerns, uh, animal rights concerns, and how all these things are kind of connected. Like the way we treat each other is connected to how we treat animals, which is connected to how the effects that it has on the on the environment and our planet. And all, for me, all these things are connected. Or even even, you know, how we treat you know people that are. That are different than us, whether they're, you know, uh, the opposite sex or non-binary or, you know, or gay. All how we treat everyone is, is so connected, and I think a lot of times people don't see that, that you, how you know that there's this ricochet effect. Yeah. You know, and for me, you know, Trump's like a perfect example of of that because like everything he does has this like huge ricochet effect into every aspect of your life so the way he treated this health crisis has an effect on our school on whether you can see other people on the environment i mean it's just like a one disaster after another and i think people you know the big takeaway from the moment that we're living in is it's not that trump has this ricochet effect every decision we make in our life has has this ripple effect and i'm always trying to better myself and trying to address things that I see, you know, as an injustice or, you know, as something that's fucked up in the world in my own small way. Um, And I'm hoping to, you know, maybe inspire or at least, you know, shed some light on those issues for other people. Yeah. You know, there was this idea that I was, I don't know who was talking about it, but the idea that everything is just sort of energy, whether it's positive or negative or, you know, towards the environment or towards each other, whatever it is. And it's just, we're all putting out this energy, good or bad. And it just, that feels kind of like that butterfly effect thing where, you know, something small happens here, it affects everything. And yeah, we need a little more good energy, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to be positive these days. But, you know, like my wife and I, like a year ago, we, we were like talking about just all the trash that our family makes, you know, and yeah. like we think of ourselves as environmentalists and I like look around and it's just like, there's so much plastic and waste. And, um, so like we just started make taking baby steps. Like we stopped using Ziploc bags, you know, we just realized we were like blowing through all these Ziploc bags and we just bought re- 
reusable ones and yeah. it's been fine and I, you know there's probably like 30 garbage bags full of ziplock bags that we've saved you know we've saved ourselves money but also you know it's something you know i don't know if it's it's not going to change the world but if everybody did it maybe it would you know so like little things like that or i stopped ordering takeout from a couple of restaurants that i love because like the, the amount of styrofoam and just garbage that they would like we would produce from these meals i just felt started feeling guilty about it yeah and i know it's unavoidable and some you know i, I mean i'm definitely no saint and um convenience gets the best of me all, you know daily but I, i'm i'm trying you know i i just want to i want to die and know that i did the best that i could you know yeah i mean i think a simple step in the right direction is a good step you know i grew up and kind of like you were talking about i grew up around a lot of straight edge kids you know and when i was in college and you know i thought of myself as pretty you know on their side in a way in a lot of aspects but you know if you had a leather belt on you were the enemy you know like any microaggression it was just like anything was you would be chastised for it. and i think well, a lot you know, of that is like teenage you know teenage angst. uh i definitely was like that when i was like a younger kid and then one day i realized you can't force people to do anything yeah and you can't you force can yourself only... to do everything yeah exactly so i'm just like i'm gonna live my life the way i you know lead by example you yeah. know uh and if other people want to join along, great. And if they don't, you know, I feel good that I, I tried to do something. Right. So, yeah. So, well, that's been like a balance of like this work. Like, how do you make something that's like addressing these issues but not being overly preachy? You know, I don't know if I'm striking the right chord, but I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot. And like, you know, because sometimes you just want to shake people and just be like, wake the fuck up. Yeah, totally. Um, but then you don't want to be the asshole, so it's, it's <laughs> and, a fine line. And when the message is that overt, sometimes it's easier to cast it off, you know. Right, but the great yeah. thing about making work too is that I feel like there's it's a sliding scale. You know, sometimes it can go a little veer a little more towards that direct message, and sometimes you can hide it. And there's something interesting about the dynamic between those two things. You know, like in the same way you were talking about, re- you know, reacting to something like COVID, it's like some people will just go into hiding or. We'll just like watch, you know, videos of, about it all day long. Other people will just, you know, disconnect completely. So, the, you know, you you can you just have to navigate it the best way you can, you know. But is uh, my feeling is as long as it's good energy, that's going to be helpful, you know. Right. Try to limit the bad energy. <laughs> Sounds pretty yeah. new agey, but it's- hey, come on, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Well, I'm definitely you know I, I in my show I ha- I made this giant painting and it's called uh, Science is the Antidote, Superstition is the Disease, and I made it before COVID, and it, it's a huge painting. It's seven by twenty feet long mm-hmm. and kind of looks like a history painting. And um, as I was finishing it up, that's when COVID struck and. Um, I was like, this is a weird painting to be making right now. Because I was actually thinking about how, like, specifically in Los Angeles, there's this, like, huge embracement of, you know, I feel like everyone I know is, like, a healer, an empath. You know, like, they're all, like, turned into shamans over overnight. <laughs> right. And these are, like, super liberal people who, I guess, used to believe in science, but now everybody's, like, 
fixing cancers with the crystals and stuff. And I'm like, what is going on? Like nobody believes in science anymore. Yeah. Uh, but then halfway through making this painting, uh, I realized that there was this other group of people that literally don't believe in anything that science says. They don't believe in scientists, you know, um, which is frightening. So like the work kind of like took on this other meaning while I was uh, making it. Yeah. That's what's weird about work. It just, it's so different depending on the environment and what's going on at the time, you know? Right. But that's also what's really engaging about it. And what I would think gives us hope that, um, you know, 20, 50 years from now, that's what makes art interesting and useful to have around is it's like a, a different kind of touchstone to what's been going on in the world. And, you know, and that can be interpreted in different ways. It's not just like an article in the times or something, you know, it's, it's something that has its own life and its own reaction to current events that could be really useful looking back at, you know, hopefully if we're still around in a hundred years. Well, you know, like in the, uh, in that painting I have, I repainted this, like, I think it's like a 16th century map of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the ones with like the kind of like the two circles that shows the, the different sides of the, the world. Right. And like what was interesting for me with that map was that it was uh, at that time, it was the most advanced scientific like technology that was around. It was the iPhone of its day, day right? It yeah. was like based on research and travels. and um, But then if you look at the map closely, it's completely wrong because they didn't have satellites and they didn't have planes and they really didn't know what all these places really look like. So California is an island. South America looks like an inverted Africa. The map's totally wrong. And, you know, I, 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 I painted it because like a lot of people's frustrations with science is that science is not static. You know, science is always changing. It's never the one truth. It's a truth that's always changing and being added to and re- revised and evolve. And I think a lot of people don't like that because they want science to be like religion. Like this is, this is the facts and the facts are not going to change. Right. So when COVID first broke out, you know, they were telling us not to wear masks. You don't need it. Then they realized, oh, wait, masks are like the best way. And a lot of people are angry because they're like, hey, you told us not to wear masks. Now you're telling us. And it's like that's not how science works. Yeah. It's built on research. It's always going to be changing and evolving. But that doesn't mean you should distrust it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... Yeah, that brings me back to the early days of COVID of, or right before it broke out and I was in a Home Depot and the guy yelled at me because I wanted to buy masks. <laughs> Why did he yell at you? He's like, it's not transmitted through the air. And I was like, are you sure about that? <laughs> and he was so annoyed that people were coming in to buy all the masks. He's like, it's not transmitted that way. And I was like, but anyways, it was just, you know, one of those frustrating anti- That guy might still be at Home Depot. I, still it, saying that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> If he's still around, I mean, geez, but yeah, it was, it was frustrating, but yeah, that kind of like, you know, inability to engage with science is frightening as far as your work. So you have the show up now. How long is it up? Uh, it'll be, it'll come down November 1st and then October 15th is, uh, the San Jose project. Nice. And then after that, I'll have a show solo show in January at Denny Dimon gallery in New York. Mm-hmm. So that'll be my second solo with them. So, and I, yeah. I imagine you're hoping to be able to fly here, or what are you thinking about traveling? 
Or is that I'm not, not flying anywhere. Yeah, okay. It's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> unless I get, unless I get a vaccine, it just. I'd love to. I'd love nothing more. But um, you know, it just seems like a unnecessary risk. Isn't it know? funny like, that um, how it seemed so weird at the beginning, like you know, not going out and not flying and not like convening and all that. Now, like if I see an old video of a music concert or something, I'm like, oh my god, look at all those people next to each yeah. other it you, we acclimate so quickly like i i'm a big soccer fan and like i can't imagine watching a game with the crowd now yeah <laughs> it's you we're, we so quickly adapt you know yeah i just you know I, like i have a friend that i spoke to this morning and he's coming out here next month for a show and great you know if you it, i think it just has to do with like your comfort level like risk versus reward yeah I, you know, life is long and one year of not traveling isn't going to kill me. And, you know, that's just how I feel. Some people, you know, also I have a kid, so it's not just me. I have to worry about my kid. And um, I just think of, you know, that 1% chance of like me getting sick and something happening to me or something happening to my kid. I would never forgive myself. So I'm like, you know, we have technology. Somebody can Zoom call me. Exactly. You know, it can wait. It that can should wait, be our yeah. motto. <laughs> that should be 2020's motto. Yeah. Except for, but you know, some people can't wait. Uh, yeah, it's true. I get it. You know, yeah. just don't come near me. <laughs> <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, leave me alone. Well, I don't feel lucky. Well, it was really cool to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks I for being it. It was nice to meet you over. The, maybe one day we can actually meet in person. Yeah, yeah. I miss studio visits. Right. Yeah, wow, yeah, that feels... Those are, the, those are the good old days. Yeah, that feels foreign, for sure. It's been a while. Well, good luck with all the shows and everything coming up, and uh, it's good to chat. All right, Brian, thank you. Thanks.